You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. Now, I'm going to start this morning with a modest confession. Uh, when I was a kid, I was not a big fan of weddings. And I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say most kids typically aren't big fans of weddings, they tend to be kind of boring for kids, and, you know, you have to dress up oftentimes, and most kids hate that. And so that began to change for me, though, when I was in college, and friends of mine began to get married. And, of course, my own wedding day sealed the deal in terms of me now being a big fan of weddings. And actually, uh, this past Wednesday was the 22nd anniversary of the day I proposed to Kate, so fun to think about that in light of uh, the passage this morning. Uh, I can still remember very vividly what she looked like when she appeared in the back of that church and seeing her walk down the aisle. It was burned into my memory forever. Now, over the past decade, I've had the privilege of performing maybe a handful of wedding ceremonies, and my favorite moment is when the bride makes her entrance. And when you're performing the ceremony, you have the best spot in the house, right? Because you can see the bride appear at the back of the church, but at the same time, you can see the groom. And you can see both their reactions to each other. But in particular, I always love watching the groom's reaction. Because usually there's this combination of tears, of joy, and this smile that is a mile wide. And I'm not a big crier, but even that gets me oftentimes. So it's just a beautiful, beautiful sight. So the passage that we're looking at this morning, we are going to tag along with Jesus as he goes to a wedding. So go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 2. Just to give a recap of where we've been at this point, Uh, Back in 119 of John's Gospel, you had uh, John, the Gospel writer, recording a series of days where Jesus gains his first disciples. So John the Baptist has identified Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two of his own disciples begin to follow Jesus. And over the next few days, they recruit a few others to join them in following Jesus. And by the time chapter 1 comes to a close, we've got five disciples who are following Jesus. You've got Andrew, his brother Simon Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and an unnamed disciple who is probably, in fact, the gospel writer John himself. But at this point, have you noticed so far, Jesus hasn't done anything, really. I mean, all he's done is told some people to follow him, but he hasn't really done anything. He hasn't taught anything. At this point, we're just kind of taking it on John the Baptist's word that this Jesus guy is worth following. Well, that's all going to change today as we look at John chapter 2. So follow along as I read first in verses 1 through 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
Now, when you start this chapter, doesn't it seem like an odd reference initially when you see on the third day? Now, in chapter one, we've seen this series of references to on the next day, on the next day, on the next day. And if you kind of wrap your brain around what's going on here, this is actually now the seventh day of this first week of Jesus' ministry, so to speak. And in, in the first century, this expression on the third day was often just used in the same way that we would refer to the day after tomorrow. And so if that's the case, then it's probably going back to verse 43, where Jesus had decided to go into Galilee. Now, in terms of where the wedding was at, Cana was not exactly the, a thriving metropolis in the first century. Maybe a thousand people lived there. It was about eight miles north of where Jesus grew up in the town of Nazareth, which was also kind of a podunk town. And it was in the hilly terrain uh, of, of Galilee there. And even though it was only eight miles, it probably would have taken about four hours or so to walk from Nazareth to Cana uh, in light of the hilly terrain. And another thing we have to kind of understand to, to see how this passage works is Jewish weddings in the first century were just a little bit different than our current contemporary weddings. For one thing, the celebration lasted up to a full week. Now think about that. A full week of a wedding celebration. So on the night before the wedding, what you would have is the groom and his groomsmen would walk together to the bride's family home where the bride and her bridesmaids would be waiting. And so there was all this anticipation. The groom would come. There would be excitement, celebration, singing. And then they would walk back to the groom's family home. And then they would spend the night there in their separate chambers. On the next day would be the actual wedding itself. And so there would be the signing of the wedding contract and a big feast, a big meal. And uh, it was ultimately the responsibility of the groom and his family to provide the food and the drink. And then after the celebration at the meal, the groom and the bride would retire to the wedding to the wedding chamber and they would consummate the marriage but then the celebration continued on for several days after that now most of these guests would not have stayed all six or seven days they would have kind of come and gone and think of it as this kind of week-long open house now i'm going to be honest here as an introvert that sounds awful a week of people just popping into your house and then leaving and you got to feed all these people and you, you have to make sure you have food and drink. Talk about stress. That would just, oh, oh I, I can't even, I, I just got to move on. So um, we don't know why Mary and Jesus were invited to the wedding, whether they were relatives or friends or whatever. But so Mary shows up, Jesus shows up, and he's got his five disciples tagging along. We don't know exactly when they arrived within the celebration here, but given what happens next, it's probably three or four days at least into the celebration when Mary and Jesus and the five disciples show up. So that's sort of setting the stage. Now we're going to see a problem. Look with me at verses 3 through 6. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now you have to understand, running out of wine would have been a major, major embarrassment for the groom and his family. And in a small town like Cana, it would have been hard to live that down. Picture this, for every wedding after that, the groom's family would have been talking to each other saying, we have to make sure we have enough wine. We don't want to end up like the Rabinowitzes did. You remember that, right? Awful situation, embarrassing. And here's where we point out that in Jesus' day, wine was a common feature of everyday life. No, it was not merely grape juice. It was fermented. It did have alcohol. But when wine was served, it was almost always diluted with two or three parts water to every part of wine. So it was pretty watered down. And to be straightforward with you, you really only drank pure wine if your intention was to get drunk. So when, when Mary alerts Jesus to this problem, it's not immediately clear what she's expecting Jesus to do. I really don't think she was expecting him to perform a miracle. You see, by this point, Mary's husband Joseph had passed away. And so as the oldest son in the family, Jesus kind of had taken over the role of the head of the family. So Mary had come to rely on Jesus for the sort of uh, problem-solving resourcefulness that the head of the household needed to have. So I don't think she's so much expecting a miracle as just trusting on Jesus to do something because there's a problem. But this response, did you catch this response that Jesus gives to his mother? If we're honest, it's a little blunt, don't you think? In essence, he asks Mary, why is this my problem again? Could you run that back for me and tell me why this is my problem? And he even addresses her as woman, which is not intended necessarily as a, it's not, it's not, it's not an insult, but it's not sort of the warm, affectionate, mom, it's not like that, it's just woman. It's very distancing. And so there's a really a sense in which he's, he's saying to Mary, uh, I need some distance here. What he seems to be indirectly telling Mary is, that their mother-son relationship is actually transcended by a far greater relationship of Lord-disciple. Even so, even so, that had to sting. This is your son. You've raised him. And yes, I know he's perfect, but that had to sting. That had to cut pretty deep that her son is saying, woman, I need some distance here. You're not going to dictate to me what I do and when I do it. That had to be hard. And then his explanation. If you're into cryptic explanations, I got something for you here. You see, he says, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is really strange unless you understand what that phrase means in John's gospel. 
This is the first time we see it, but we're going to see it repeatedly in these first 12 chapters where Jesus will repeatedly say things like, my hour has not come. Or John the gospel writer will say his hour had not yet come. So what is this hour? Well, all through those first uh, chapters, this hour is referring to the time of Jesus' death and his resurrection through which God is going to display Jesus' glory. And all throughout those first 12 chapters, it's not yet, not yet, not yet. And then in chapter 13, when Jesus is spending time with his disciples the night before his crucifixion, John, the gospel writer, says that Jesus knew that his hour had come. So all of this is building up to the cross. And so Jesus is in effect saying, it's not time yet for me to make a public demonstration of my glory as the promised Messiah. It's not time to go public just yet. And still, this is remarkable what Mary does, right? Even though she's been rebuked, what does she do? She tells the servants, whatever he says, do it. You see, she's still holding out hope that despite the misunderstanding, despite her needing to be rebuked, that Jesus is still going to do something. But the question is, what? Now, John almost kind of throws this detail in, in passing, right? In Genesis verse 6, by the way, there are these six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. And they're large, right? They each held 20 or 30 gallons of water. And John is explaining that these are for the Jewish rites of purification. So the Jews in that day had a lot of purification rites with washing of hands, washing of pots and pans and that sort of thing. And they were all intended to keep you ceremonially pure or clean so you could enter into God's presence. And so John just sort of drops that little breadcrumb there and we move on, right? Let's look at verses 7 through 10 now to see what Jesus does. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I'm struck by how restrained John is in telling this story. I mean, he just simply kind of goes fact by fact, right? Tell the water, Jesus tells the servants to fill the, the, the jars to the brim, sends them with a sample to this master of the feast. Uh, think of a sort of modern combination of event coordinator, MC, caterer, DJ, and maybe head waiter, all in one person, kind of overseeing all the, cer the, the, the ceremony here and all the, the revelry. And he was the go-to guy. And just in passing, did you notice this? John mentions, oh, by the way, that water had become wine. Did you see that? Verse 9, 
the water now become wine, almost as if it's an afterthought of, oh, yeah, by the way, yeah, the water's now wine. Stay with me, right? So the master of the feast tastes the water that had become wine, and he's like, huh, this is pretty good. I mean, this is, no, this is not pretty good. This is really good. And he decides, you know, we should probably tell the groom that everything's okay. The master of the feast, nor the groom, none of, neither of them show any curiosity that we're aware of, of trying to figure out, where did this stuff come from? This is the best wine you've ever had. But in, in this, in this uh, conversation between the master of the feast and the, and the groom, did you notice he says, you know, I'm going to be honest with you, typical practice here in Galilee is you put the good stuff out first, and people still have their senses about them, and then when they're a little tipsy, you slip the cheap stuff in on them. And they don't care at that point anymore, right? But you, you flipped it so that the stuff you served before, which was great, doesn't even compare to the stuff you're serving now. And then it's almost like the curtain closes. And then we get the summary, the aftermath, right? Look at verses 11 and 12. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So the text doesn't explain why they didn't go back home to Nazareth, instead went to Capernaum, a little further away, about 18 miles to the east on the Sea of Galilee. Would have been a full day of walking for them. And so they probably spent one night at least in Cana at the wedding feast. But really the key verse is verse 11. Look at it again. John describes what Jesus did as the first of his signs. Now this term sign in John's gospel refers to a miracle that Jesus performs to show us he is the fullest revelation of who God is and his glory. And by calling it his first sign, John is making more than a chronological observation. He's saying that this sign is a paradigm, a framework for understanding who Jesus is. Now, of all the possible miracles that Jesus could have done to launch his ministry, why would he choose to turn water into wine to spare a family from social embarrassment. How does that show us the glory of Jesus? Doesn't there have to be more to this story than what we've seen so far? The answer, my friends, is a wholehearted, yes, there's so much more going on in this passage that we're going to have to go back through it again and see all these little breadcrumbs that John, the gospel writer, left for us. It's like getting to the end of a mystery novel or a movie or a TV show, and you get to the end and there's the big reveal of, oh, it was the butler in the parlor with the candlestick that did it, right? And you're thinking, wait a minute, how did, and then they kind of review all of the little hints along the way that if you had caught them, you wouldn't have been surprised at all. Well, that's what we're going to do here because John has dropped not just breadcrumbs, we're talking like loaves of bread all over this story for us to follow him. So let's take a closer look now. I'm going to show you four truths that Jesus 
or sorry, that John teaches us through this story. Four truths that John, the gospel writer, shows us through this story and why this is an appropriate miracle or sign that Jesus chose to launch his ministry and show his glory. Number one, Jesus is the bridegroom of God's people. Jesus is the bridegroom of God's people. Now, Jesus doesn't come out and say that here, nor does John, the gospel writer, say that here. But, turn over with me to chapter 3 in John's gospel. Look with me. John, is, John the Baptist is getting some heat from his own disciples. Um, John, do you realize that Jesus has a bigger church than you do right now? All right, like this is kind of, our numbers are down, this is a problem. And John the Baptist makes it clear, I'm not concerned about that. Now look what he says, I'm not the Christ, verse 28. Now verse 29, this is John the Baptist telling his disciples, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. You see, John the Baptist is making it clear, Jesus is the bridegroom of God's people. And this is not just unique here. This is taught several places in the New Testament. But what's particularly striking is that in the Old Testament... God describes his relationship with his people in terms of a marriage. That he is the husband of God's people. You see, God designed human marriage between a man and a woman to be a picture of his relationship with his people. And let me just tell you, as an aside, when you get that, it really frames everything in a marriage. You see, your marriage, if you are married, is not about you. It's not about your spouse. It's not about you meeting her needs or her meeting your needs or vice versa. It's not about any of that. It is about displaying a picture of Christ and his church. That's why God made human marriage. Now, are there other parts of marriage? Sure, absolutely. And one of the ways that we demonstrate the beauty and glory of God's relationship to his people is by loving each other well and serving each other well and caring for each other well. But at the end of the day, your marriage is not about you. It's about God and his relationship to his people. And when you get that, it starts to cut through some of the silliness that can set in where we start to keep score of, well, she's not meeting my needs and he's not meeting my needs. That's not the purpose of marriage. It's to be a picture of God's relationship with his people. And as a result of seeing that and wanting to reflect that, we are moved with love to fulfill our roles in marriage and love and serve our spouse. And stop and think about this for a minute. If the reality that human marriage is a shadow of is Christ's relationship to his people. Think about this wedding in a small Galilean village in the foothills of Cana. They're celebrating the shadow when in their midst stands the reality. There's the bridegroom. He's standing right there. 
and they didn't see it. But I imagine that some of those people at that wedding feast, afterwards, when they, after Jesus had died and risen from the grave, they started to put it together. And imagine that sense of awe and wonder of the bridegroom was in our midst. And he showed up at our wedding. So by turning water into wine at a wedding feast, Jesus is announcing for everyone with eyes to see and ears to hear that he is the promised bridegroom of God's people. Number two, the messianic age has now begun because the bridegroom is here. The messianic age has begun because the bridegroom is here. Now, this might be harder to see at first, but stay with me. You see, several places in the Old Testament, wine is a symbol of blessing that comes when Messiah will arrive and when God will fulfill his promises to make everything new. Wine is sort of seen as this symbol of the blessing that will come when Messiah arrives and this new age of human history begins. And so I just want you to listen to this passage from Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. I think this was in John's mind. I think this is in Jesus' mind as he's at this wedding feast. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, full, refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, This is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And other passages like Amos 9.13 picture this messianic age in terms of mountains dripping sweet wine, hills flowing with it. So what does Jesus do at this wedding in the foothills of Galilee? He transforms 150 gallons of water into wine. And not just any wine, the best wine, surpassing everything before it. Now that the Messiah has come, the hills are beginning to flow with wine. And the new era of human history has begun, in which eventually death itself will be swallowed up, and every tear will be wiped away. If that's not enough of a hint, there's more. John helps us see this reality by what he says in verse 11 of chapter 2. Go back with me. When he says this is the first of his signs that Jesus did, that's the same word that back in John 1.1 is translated beginning. As in, in the beginning was the word. Echoing the words of Genesis one. So just as Genesis 1 was the beginning of the original creation, the arrival of the Messiah now signals the beginning of a new creation in which everything will be made new. But there's even more 
Look, do you remember how the story of creation begins and ends in Genesis 1 and 2? What's the last thing that happens in Genesis 2? It's a wedding, right? God brings Eve to Adam, and they are united together as husband and wife. And so now here at the beginning of this new creation, this new period in human history, Jesus attends a wedding to reveal himself as the bridegroom of God's people and to say the messianic age of blessing has become real now that the Messiah is here. The third thing that John is teaching in this passage is that true cleansing cannot be found in Jewish rituals. True cleansing cannot be found in Jewish rituals. You see, the Old Testament had a number of these purification rituals, and by the time of Jesus, the Jews had had even more. But the fact they had to be repeated over and over and over and over again showed they were never able to take away and take away sin and cleanse the heart from impurity and wickedness. You see, the fact that Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars up to the brim is indicating that those purification rituals were impotent to provide true purification. Listen to how Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10 puts it. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And so by filling those jars designated for the purification rites of the Jewish people, filling them with water and then transforming them into wine, Jesus is demonstrating that he is the fulfillment of the purification and cleansing these Jewish rituals pointed forward to. How? How is Jesus going to do that? How is he going to provide cleansing that those water rituals could never, ever provide? That leads us to our fourth thing that this passage teaches us. Fourth, Jesus provides true cleansing through his death and his resurrection. You see, when it comes to wine, it's not just a symbol of blessing. It's also a symbol of of blood and the blood that Jesus sheds on the cross for us. Remember I said earlier that at a wedding, it was the responsibility of the groom to provide the wine for the feast? So what do you have here? Jesus is turning the water into wine at a wedding feast to point forward to the way he's going to provide his own wine for his own wedding feast. And it's going to cost a lot more than just a whole bunch of money. It's going to cost him his life. See, when he fills those jars and he transforms them into wine, he's pointing to his death. He's pointing to what is necessary to provide our cleansing, true purification. Listen to how Hebrews 9.14 describes it. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It's, 
the death of Jesus is not the end of the story. Not only does Jesus die for the sins of his people, he rises from the dead to conquer our greatest enemies of sin, death, and the evil one. And he hints at this here in John chapter 2, verse 1. Let's go back to the first words of this passage. Did you catch it? John introduces this story with the phrase, on the third day. That's more than just a chronological reference. What John is hinting at is that this third day, this phrase that in the Old Testament often points to significant events in human history that God is orchestrating, talking about God's redemption of his people, that this third day that this wedding feast is taking place on, this is no mere coincidence. Because all throughout the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is associated with happening on the third day. And just so you see that I'm not making this up, look with me later in John chapter 2. Down in chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus is having this argument with the religious leaders. Look at what Jesus says. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. Now verse 21, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. By rising from the dead on the third day, Jesus swallows up death, just like that passage in Isaiah had promised. And one day, he is going to return, and he's going to come back, and he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. So you see, the main point of this story is pretty straightforward when you step back. What John's teaching us is this. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's our bridegroom who cleanses us from our sin and brings the blessings of the messianic age through his death and his resurrection. So how should we respond? The short answer is, to respond like the disciples. Did you look at that in verse 11 again? It says that Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. In response to seeing the glory of God revealed as the bridegroom, they believed. And that's the proper response when seeing that Jesus is the bridegroom of God's people. He's the one who can provide true cleansing that nothing else can provide. That's the response we need to have is to trust in him, to believe him. Not just merely to agree intellectually about that truth, but to love Christ, to delight in him, to trust him with our whole lives, to devote ourselves to him, to follow him. Now, for some of you here this morning, that might mean trusting in Jesus for the very first time. The good news of the gospel is that no matter how sinful you are, Jesus offers you cleansing and forgiveness through his death and his resurrection. Don't fool yourself into thinking you can clean up your life good enough to cleanse yourself from your sins. You can't. You are accountable to a holy God who requires perfection. And your only hope on that day when you appear before him is to say, Jesus' blood paid it all for me. That's your only hope. 
You can't clean up your life on your own. Your heart is full of impure thoughts and wickedness. Your life is full of impure actions. You need true purity that only Jesus can give you through his death and his resurrection. Is your sin so sweet that it's worth an eternity in hell forever experiencing God's wrath? All you need to do, the bridegroom says, I want you to come to my wedding feast. I want you to be part of my people. Come celebrate with me. Just put your trust and your faith in me and turn away from your impurities. That's what the bridegroom offers you and says, come. Come to my wedding feast as an honored guest. Make that day today if you've never put your trust in Jesus. And for those of us who have already put our trust in Jesus, God is calling us to see afresh the beauty of our bridegroom. And respond by growing in our faith and trusting him. He's calling us to remember that not only does Jesus provide cleansing from our sin initially when we put our trust in him. But he provides the ongoing cleansing we need because we continue to fall short of his beauty and his glory in our lives. He's calling us to find our greatest joy and our greatest satisfaction not in any earthly thing. Not even in a godly marriage but ultimately in him as our bridegroom. He is the great bridegroom who gave his life to provide wine of blessing for us. And friends, he's calling us to long, long for the day when he comes back. Because you see, at the end of human history is coming a wedding feast like nothing we can even imagine with the richest foods and well-aged wine. Listen to how John describes it at the end of Revelation. Revelation 19, 6-9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, friends, that's going to be so glorious. So amazing. It'll be greater than any wedding you've ever attended. Any party, any celebration you can even fathom is but a shadow to that great reality. Oh, friends, see Jesus as your great bridegroom and long for his return.